Have you ever wondered if an entire school could be responsive to the needs, dreams, and possibilities of an entire community? Or have you ever pursued doing fundamentally different racial justice education work, but unfortunately you keep butting up against the traditional norms of schooling that aim to keep the racial status quo in place and you don't know what to do? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, then you're in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green, and I'm a tenure professor of education, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can build racially just schools collectively. On today's episode, I am breaking bread again with Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade, and this is part two of our conversation. So if you missed the first one, Please go back to episode 14 and listen to it. Share it. Jeff was dropping gems. It was fire. It is amazing. And on today's episode, Jeff is continuing to drop gems. It's fire. It is amazing. As we talk about community responsive education, we also talk about his roots in culturally responsive teaching and culturally relevant pedagogy and how sometimes the applications of these two powerful pedagogical approaches are missed right? And what people can actually do about it. We also talk about my main man, Tupac Amaru Shakur. We talk about Pac. We talk about what educators can learn from Pac. And we talk about so, so, so much more. This is a powerful episode. I hope you listen to it. And I hope you share it with folks that you're engaged in this work with. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by www.raciallyjustschools.com. And when you join our community today, I'll send you a free video on how to make your racial justice work better. I'm excited about you joining the community and I look forward to meeting you. And now for today's episode, I hope you enjoy it. Let's go. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green, and I am your host. And yo, I'm super hyped and deeply humbled that you are here for this episode because today's episode is so dope. We're back again with Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. Y'all ready for this? Here it is. I want to talk to you in a moment about the work that you've been doing with your collaborators on community responsive education. And before we do that, I just want to provide some context to that work and some of the historical origins and roots of it. And I'm wondering if you can speak to kind of this movement, you know, early on of, you know, multicultural education. And then that work um, is pushed further. I'm thinking particularly of two scholars, both black women, uh, the work of Gloria Latson Billings, Dr. Gloria Latson Billings on culturally relevant pedagogy, but also the work of Dr. Geneva Gay on culturally responsive teaching. And I know there are other lines that feed into um, how you all are conceptualizing community responsive education, but I'm thinking about th- those two in particular. But could you speak to the the origins and the history of how we even get to community responsive education? I appreciate you acknowledging the big homies like Geneva and Gloria and, you know, um, so many folks that came before us, um, 
you know, before me and Ernest that um, that really looked out for us when our ideas were seen as like, re- you know, frankly, really suspect. Um, and and there were so many people, you know, like those two, um, like Pedro Noguera, um, <clears throat> like Sonia Nieto, like Antonia Darder, um, who who were pushing in in ways that allowed um, Ernest and I to have runway to to push and say things that that um, that they couldn't say right because they were blocking for us um, and and I think that it's so important to acknowledge that right that that's why um, that's one of the main reasons why um, having scholars of color is so important because um, yes like our work is important, but it's also the space we make for people um, and other scholars coming behind us um, to dream in ways that we weren't, you know, allowed to dream. So I'm, I'm really appreciative that you acknowledge them. And, you know, a lot of those folks that um, I just mentioned, um, you know, I thought Chris Gutierrez in there too, a lot of them, um, you know, were their work was seen as like really cutting edge um, when when I was teaching full time, and so you had you know the the multicultural education movement, um, you know Jim Banks and and um, Sonia Nieto and a lot of them right, um, and and you had um, uh, Name was the big like national organization, National Association of Multicultural Educators, um, and. You know, their their work really pushed the field to say that it's the absence of um, people of color. It's the absence of um, women. It's the absence of, um, you know, non-gender conforming, non-binary, right, representation in the educational experience that's really crippling for um, students that don't identify as, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant English-speaking heterosexual males, um, and um, and so that that movement, the, the, the multicultural education movement, right, got a lot of energy behind it. Um, and I was on the ground watching the difference between what I was hearing them say and w- what was actually being executed, right, in schools, and what the mandate was that we were given. And so, you know the multicultural education movement did not fundamentally impact outcomes for the most vulnerable and wounded children in our society, not because it was wrongheaded, but because um, it was the, the application of it was, um, was weak minded. Oh, this is, this is good. This, and this is very important. Now you're hitting on something that is, it, it is, it's critical and crucial for, for folks to really get this um, and you're naming it. So thank you because we have these very robust and powerful concepts and theories and ideas around teaching and around pedagogy um, that, that emerge from practice and they're, they're grounded in practice, but something happens with the 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 application of it sometimes the execution there becomes this disconnect and that people they take up culturally relevant and culturally responsive teaching and pedagogy in ways that you know Dr. Gay and Dr. Lasting Billings didn't originally intend and so could you unpack this and talk a little bit more about this disconnect that happens from these robust theories and ideas 
and how people have taken them up and, and practiced them and executed them in classrooms. Rather than, again, going back and doing the foundational work and really examining um, what the curriculum actually represented in terms of the purpose of the project, um, it was just, oh, okay, well, you know, like you're a black kid. And so I'm going to give you the autobiography of Malcolm X because the reason that you're not interested in school is because you're not reading black literature. And so here you go. And no examination of pedagogy. Right. So um, it was like, oh, let's we're just looking for quick system cross the system fixes because we don't actually want to do the hard work of self-examination. And so, of course, multicultural education um, became um, an extension of a white supremacist sensibility, which is that, oh, like you have black kids, you have Latino kids and, you know, and, and we have Latino kids. And so that worked in San Antonio with Latino kids. So let's just do that here because they're all the same. Right. And it essentialized. Um, race, mm. right? It essentialized mm. culture. Yes. Um, and, um, and it didn't look at all the ways that we built a society that allows for that essentialization to lead to young black men being shot 80 times in the street by police officers. It didn't do the deeper examination of the psyche and the consciousness that it takes to assume that Latino children in San Antonio are the same as Latino children in East LA. And so um, then, right, comes the, the next push, which is like Gloria's work, right? And, and all of the folks that kind of like built on her stuff, right? And the idea that, that no, 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 it's actually a, about a cultural responsivity, Right. Like that you. Yes, the curriculum matters. But what matters probably even more is who's teaching and how they're teaching um, and what their relationships are to children. And so then. Right. Then um, we got. Oh, right. Right. That you can't just like insert a text that you have to you have to teach in a way that reflects the, the racialized culture of this group. And then it just repeated itself. It's like, well, you know, you got like 86% of the national teaching force is white, 84% is female. So you've got this huge collection of white women um, that, that really have little to no cultural connection to people of color. And they're hearing, right, this, um, you know, commitment to like having classrooms respond to the culture of students. Yeah. Woo, Jeff, this is good. This is, this is powerful. And I'm wondering if there is a metaphor or an analogy that you can use to help make this even clearer for folks, because this is a profoundly important point for people to really get to do this work in some powerful ways. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Brian Stevenson, um, but, you know, arguably the, the most successful death row lawyer in the United States. Right. And, and he I shared a stage with him once. And one of the things that he said 
that really resonated with me was he said, you know, the, the, the problem of this social justice work, right, this, this effort to like push us towards a, a more democratic society, a more just society, um, is not um, the lack of really smart, committed, hardworking people working on it. That's not the, that's not the gap. He says with the, the, the gap is that a lot of those really smart, committed folks that are working on it, they, when they think about what they want to do, so when they think about how they're going to do like culturally responsive pedagogy, um, when they think about doing multicultural education, they often gather around a table with a bunch of people who look and talk and think and live just like them. And they come up with what in their own hearts and minds is the best possible solution given their worldview. And it doesn't make them bad people or evil people, just makes them ignorant. And and so what effectively happens, what effectively happened with the application of Gloria's work, with the application of multicultural education was what Brian Stevenson referred to as aspirin. And he says the solutions that we're coming up with are effectively aspirin. And if you give aspirin to somebody that has a headache, it will temporarily relieve the symptoms of the headache, but it won't stop them from getting headaches because aspirin doesn't deal with the root cause. It doesn't deal with the foundation. And so what was missing in the application of so much of, of Gloria and, you know, all those folks, Geneva, all of them, like the, the, the application of their work on the ground was what, what Brian Stevenson refers to as proximity to pain, right? So these teachers never got proximity to our communities. They never got proximity to our families. And when they did, it was with, with a visitor's pass, right? So it was like, I'm coming in to, to extract culture and then I'm going to go do your culture to you through my cultural lens, right? And so one of the things that Stevenson talks about is, is that when you get proximity to pain, you have to humble up and hush up. And you have to understand that our communities, our people, our families, our children already know what we need, right? And so you need to listen and you need to understand that we we actually know how to take care of ourselves in a pandemic because you laid pandemic at our feet the second you contacted our lives and it never changed and so the funny thing is one of my colleagues at at CRE um, who's a faculty at um, San Jose State now? Another person who I'd recommend that your um, your your listeners check out. Her her, her name's um, Tiffany Marie or, or Tiffany Marie Johnson. Um, and um, you know, she, one of the things that she said to me, I interview her for for my um, latest book. There's a pretty lengthy interview with her, and I, I just think she's one of the most amazing human beings I've ever been around, but and certainly one of the most amazing educators. And one of the things that she um, points out in that is that like, you know, that everything I'm talking about right now 
um, you know, all the wellness work that we've been doing, you know, all, all of this like proximity to pain, all of these things, right? These are things that our elders and ancestors have been saying for centuries, right? And, and the funny thing is, right, that Tiffany points out um, is that now Western science has validated it, right? So now all of Western science is sort of like saying, oh, yeah, actually, like black and indigenous people were right all along. <laughs> and, and, but, and so now it's true. Um, but what Western science is saying that children need developmentally um, is it's not new, right? This isn't actually a breakthrough. And, and I think it's great that Western science is validating it now because that's what like systems often feel like they need, right? They need evidence. Um, and so, um, now you've got these really powerful forces coming together of our elders, right? And, and, and the stories and the medicine of our ancestors is really lining up with a lot of the quote unquote hard science around um, one, the harm that's being done by the way in which we built this society um, and um, the ways that we can respond. And what it's saying, both the elders and the science is that the, the, the move is to community responsiveness. Hey, fam, you you preaching up in this mug. Mm, mm, mm. That was rich. That is so, so, so rich. That was a beautiful contextualization of how we got to where we are. And I think is a wonderful segue into the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is community responsive education. Can you talk to us about like what exactly is it and kind of unpack that for folks, given this context that you've just laid out for us? Yeah, and I <clears throat> I have to give a a nod to um, my colleagues at, at um, CRE community responsive education group. Um, and, and particularly, you know, the, the, I think understudied and undervalued work of, of um, one particular colleague there um, whose name is Alison Titanyango Kubalis. I think she'd be another great person for you to have on this um, podcast, but um, yeah, she, she um, in particular really shaped um, the way that I think about um, the, you know, what, what community responsive education even is and, and what it, um, what it would like, why we need to make that shift and, and, and what a shift like that would mean. And, you know, <clears throat> because if you are community responsive, you, you, you can't be community responsive without being culturally responsive. But the difference is that to be community responsive, you have to get proximity to the community. And when you get that proximity, then you understand the way that culture operates in the particular context in which you're doing the work. And you begin to understand that even inside of a, a fairly small city like Oakland, that if you go from one schoolhouse to the next, like four blocks away, the culture's different. And so what it means to be culturally responsive in school X and school Y is going to have some nuance. 
it's going to look different. And the only way that you can understand those really important and distinctive differences is by being community responsive and getting true and consistent and humble proximity to the community that you're serving. And it doesn't mean that like that you just kind of throw your hands up and, you know, the kids get to run around and do it. That's not what I'm saying. Right. But what I am saying is that um, if you don't ground yourself as an educator in the, the, the material conditions and the histories of the lives of the people that you're designing this school experience for, then what you're doing is giving out aspirin. And that's why I say that if, if, you know, if, if the project is wellness, then, then you're always looking at core cause, right? Like what, what is foundational? If, if, if the project is compliance, then you give out aspirin because you're just wanting people to learn, right? How to raise their hand when they have a headache rather than wanting people to learn how to not have headaches. And I think that's the place where a lot of um, the work that we've been trying to push and, and, and support in communities um, is, is pushing that conversation not to say that multicultural ed was wrong, not to say that culturally responsive or culturally sustaining is wrong, but to say that we, we actually feel like there's another important distinction that needs to be made because of how we're seeing those concepts rolled out on the ground in schools. Man, that is so powerful. And I think, Jeff, it underscores like, I don't, I don't have the 15 steps that you can do tomorrow to be community responsive. Go to the school, listen, learn the history, embed yourself in the context, and allow that to organically emerge within that context, right? I, I can give you the syllabus. Okay, you got the syllabus, but you got to spend time rooted and grounded in the space, man. So thank you. Thank you for naming that. And mad love to both um, Geneva Gay and Dr. Ladson Billington. But you this powerful quote around schooling teaches you your place in society, but education teaches you to transform society. And so my question for you is a two-parter. One is, man, can we do deep education still in the context of schooling? And the reason I ask you that is because, Jeff, the socialization of schooling, it runs deep, my brother, even for the most critical among us, me included, right? And so I'm curious, what's your thoughts on that? Can it really happen? Because we're even with our critical pedagogical approaches to the work, we still can come in and not even question, well, you're in fourth grade, so you shouldn't be doing, you know, geometry because you're not 15 yet or whatever it is. That binary. And I, I find that binaries are useful for um, for opening up complex discussions. Um, and so that binary of the, the schooling versus education binary is, is one that I, I actually learned from, um, from another big homie, Angela Valenzuela. Um, and, she, you know, she wrote a book called Subtractive Schooling. And it was, um, it was the students that actually um, 
articulated that binary in their experience, right? That there were certain classrooms, certain educator practices um, that made them feel schooled. And, um, and she, she calls that um, the, the affect of, of schooling as an, the aesthetic of care. Right. So so um, she was really building on Nell Nodding's work um, around, you know, this whole literature of caring. Right. Which actually comes from nursing. Um, And um, and what what in in her research, what what Angela discovered, you know, maybe not discovered, but what the kids revealed to her was that um, that there were certain educators um, who. uh, engaged in practices that she calls authentic care or cariño. Um, and that was, that was when children were experiencing education that what, what at the end of the day, the way that they kind of um, sorted out in their mind um, what this teacher's project was, was all relational, right? It was like, does this person authentically care about me? And do they care about me when I least deserve it? Um, Or is there an an aesthetic of care, meaning like you're required to say you care because you're a teacher, but you don't care about me until I show I care about you. And so the person with the least amount of power has the biggest burden in the relationship, right? Um, And so... Um, you know, she draws out this distinction that 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 I've been just you know played around with, where it, and and what you referenced, which is the idea that that schooling is the process by which we institutionalize people to accept their position in life, and education is the process by which we work collaboratively with, with people to understand that we can transform it, and so again, it goes back to the purpose question. Right. Like for what? And and schools, so much of schools, as you point out, right, so much of schools, no matter how well trained we are um, to be disruptive of those toxic patterns, um, the very design of the school day, the very design, the physical, like architectural design of the classroom is built to support schooling. And so, and I think that's why so many teachers burn out, right? And so many teachers have a toxic relationship to their own teaching because something in their head is telling them this shit is not right. And, and I know that like, I'm like doing, you know, jujitsu over here to try and make it more right, but I'm still finding myself and, you know, I, I raise my hand around this one. I, I still find myself upholding institutional norms that I know in like in my writing, <laughs> like I'm, I'm outwardly critical of. And it's it's really slippery work. And I think that one of the reasons why I've been able to do it for so long is because I've been surrounded by amazing, brilliant um, people that um, that have continued to challenge me, right? So many of the people that I've, I've you know, mentioned here today, um, you know, Ernest being, you know, 
at or near the top of that list um, that we, you know, when we taught together, um, you know, we would, we would, we taught together, we coached together, we, you know, drove each other to, you know, back and forth between grad school and lunch. And we were like constantly in conversation with each other about what we were doing and what we were wrestling with. And I think that is so rare in my experience in, in schools um, to have that kind of really lengthy, deep collaborative partnership with somebody um, that, um, that is both truth telling and allowing you to truth tell in a way that doesn't make you feel judged, doesn't make you right. But is like that we're on a journey together. And, and I think that, that the way the system is designed, the way schools are designed, <clears throat> um, it's, it's a profoundly isolating experience teaching. Man, the work that y'all been doing at Rose is I'm curious if you could share like some of the things you're learning for people who want to come in and do similar work in their local context, but even may want to push the possibilities even more. I guess, what are you learning and what might you offer to folks? One of the things I learned in Roses now, I think nine years in, um, is how how even more profoundly isolating leadership is, and and the ways in which that that toxifies adult culture, and and in that toxic adult culture, right, that isolationist that close your door, right? Lock your door. You do your work, right? It's not a community. It's not a collective. And if adults are experiencing that, then, then, you know, you know, sure as shooting that, that children are experiencing that Um, because we are emanating that right culture, that, that relationship with one another as, as grown folks in the space and kids are picking up on it. And, and then they, right, just replicate and norm that. So one of the things that, that I've said over the years is that um, there are no youth culture problems. Youth culture is just a mirror. It's just reflecting back to us the society that we built and the institutions we built. And the way you know this is because you can take, you can take any kid literally any kid, um, you know, with like the, the, the like 0.01, like outlier kids who have like some real serious, you know, like neurological, physiological issues. Right. But outside of those kids, I mean, literally pretty much damn near any kid, you can take them and put them in environment X, let's say teacher classroom X from eight to nine. And they are, completely engaged, right? Empathic, um, self-aware, collective, collaborative, bell rings. They walk across the hall to classroom Y and suddenly they're a problem, right? Well, then it can't be the kid, right? The, 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 The child is, the young person, the adolescent is just responding to the the adult environment that's been constructed. And we keep, you know, I think I might say this in the book, but one of my, my mom's 93 and, 
you know, I'm the youngest of seven kids and, and I can, I can remember it like all the way back to some of the earliest lessons that she would give us because they were the same lessons she's given to me now, which is, you know, and, and I think many, you know, of, of your listeners have parents who have said something to the, to the degree of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I feel like we keep treating our children like they're broken. Like we keep trying to fix our kids and our children are not broken. Our society's broken. Our school system's broken. These institutions that we're putting our children in are broken. That's what needs the fixing. And kids, kids are fine, you know, but every generation of kids gets the finger pointed at them. You know, I know, you know, my generation did that, you know, it was, it was the music we were listening to, right. And it was, it was rock music and it was this rap stuff that we were listening to and, you know, and, you know, gangster rap and what that's happened to every single generation of kids because adults find it so difficult to look in the mirror. And, and going back to that, like that truth telling. And I think that we, we struggle with that at Roses too, because we are still trapped inside of a system that is so self-protective and hyper-conservative that it fears innovation. I mean, it literally like freaks out. And, and so my experience at Roses was that when we, when we started, when we shared the idea, when people were watching the TED Talk, right? Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people were like, yes, let, yeah, right? And then we got into the work and people thought it was a website. They, they thought it was a TED Talk. Right. They, they we, we weren't. And, and I own this right as not as the leader. I think people like totally misunderstand what Roses was and what it is. It's it was always an aspiration of a community. And I think that that this society needs like an image of some like, you know, powerful individual leader. And, and I, I spent an inordinate amount of my time trying to buck that, right? And, and to like, I won't even let people, when they like put my bio out there, call me the founder because I'm not the founder. I'm a founder, right? But I'm not the founder because you, one person can't found a school, right? It, it was, right, a whole community. But I think that what, what, as one of the leaders, as one of the founders, what we didn't do a good job, one of the lessons that I have taken away is that we weren't really explicit enough and, and maybe even honest enough with folks about what we were actually going to have to do, right? That you're going to have to do all the stuff you normally do, right, in a school, and you're going to have to pick up a hammer and you're going to have to pick up a shovel and you're going to have to pick up a broom because we ain't built nothing yet. And, and I don't think we really, well, I'll speak for myself. I don't think I really understood um, just how hard that is to do the business of school, 
right? To receive children every day and to be attempting to doing it fundamentally differently. So each day you're kind of making it up a little bit, right? You, I mean, you got a plan, but, but you're not really sure if the plan's going to go to plan. And so you're constantly like modifying, right? And it's, it's, it's a dance and you're doing all of this really like complex work while you're trying to figure out your budget, right? While you're trying to order new chairs and tables, right? For kindergarten. And I just, we couldn't have known, like you don't know what you don't know until you know that you don't know it. And so I think one of the, there's so many lessons, right? So many lessons. But I think one of the main lessons is to um, go slow, give grace, and to to really understand that um, if you're if 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 what you're trying to do is what we were trying to do, which is something fundamentally different inside of a very powerful established and committed system whose main commitment is self-preservation that you're going to come under real scrutiny and attack. And from, from, I think some of the very same people that on its face really were believing in roses and I think what people don't, um, self-included, don't always understand and accept um, is that dreaming is easy. Building is hard. And I think we had dreamers um, and we put too much in our respective backpacks um, in terms of timeline in order to build what we were trying to build. So, you know, where we are now, eight, nine years later, um, you know, my sons still go to the school that we built. They're heading into fourth grade now with one of the original founding teachers. Um, and a lot of their class is still intact. So a lot of the same families. Um, but um, when we met the, when we hit the five year mark, um, we were lit, literally in the middle of like labor organizing and like all the tensions around that um, at the same time that we were coming up for renewal. And so all of our energy went to trying to figure out labor, right? Trying to figure out contract, trying to figure out like, how do we really create a different kind of relationship to, to teachers? Um, and, and as, as part of that commitment, we, I, I don't know if it was conscious or not, but we sort of, um, we gave less energy to, to the like 
making ourselves palatable to the system for renewal. And the political winds changed, right? Some of the key people that supported us when we first came out were no longer on the school board. Um, We had flipped the superintendent. Um, And so what we ended up doing was, um, was merging with another school. So we merged with a school that was the last um, primarily black elementary school in East Oakland. And they were, um, they were in a bit of, of a conundrum because their enrollment was declining. Um, you know, like there's a, a mass out migration of black folks from Oakland, like many cities. Um, and so they were kind of up against it. Um, and, and we were up against it in terms of our ability to, um, show in a way that made sense to the system what impact what we we were having so we had like amazing stories and if you came to the campus it was like undeniable like everybody that came was like I, i've never and i'm talking about people from all over the world right we're just like I've, I've never seen or felt anything like this ever in a school and that that felt really good to me um, that, that, that my sons were having that experience and that, you know, that other communities were having that experience and seeing that something fundamentally different was possible, even if we didn't have it all, you know, sorted out or figured out. Um, And so we ended up merging with the school and coming back in the district and then in the process, um, renaming ourselves. So we're now the um, Oakland Academy of Knowledge or OAK, which is like the, you know, the semi-acronym for, for Oakland. Um, and um, a lot of the original core staff are still there. Um, but I think a lot of the things that we did really, really well and some of the core elements of roses um, have have been watered down some. And so you can see it in like individual classrooms, but the larger climate and culture of the of the school um, is much different. Um, and, and I think um, not in a good way from the climate and the culture that we had built at Roses. Man, this has been a, a true joy. It really has brought joy in. I know we're coming at the end of our time, but I just have one question that I just have to ask you. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, and it's about Pac. It's about Tupac. And I'm curious, man, I know I've heard you talk about Pac and what he's meant to you, and and Pac has meant a lot to me and my work. But what can we as educators learn from Tupac in terms of, you know, doing critical work and thinking about new possibilities and creating a new system? And the thing about Pac, man, is that, I mean, he was grounded and rooted in this. You know, his mother was a panther. His stepfather, uh, Mutulu Shakur, who is still a political prisoner, is, uh, you know, healed over a thousand brothers and sisters who were on on heroin. Geronimo Pratt's his stepfather. Asada Shakur is a stepmother. So, you know, Pac was so influential because through Pac, I I learned about political prisoners. I learned about reparation. I learned about um, Latasha Harlins. I learned about uh, Yummy Sandifer. I learned about all these ways in which the system was rigged against us through the poetry and the music 
of Tupac Shakur. Man, but what can we learn from Pac as educators? Well, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've obviously written and talked a lot about um, the significance of, of Tupac's work for for me personally and for, for I think, this project of um, rethinking public education. Um, and so, you know, I think what, that people should read, you know, Tupac's work um, <clears throat> and, and really respect um, his complexity as a human being as an, and, and as an artist um, and to acknowledge like just how young he was, you know, um, <clears throat> and, and to also acknowledge that I, I think people are, are dismissive of um, hip hop generally um, and, and at Tupac in particular um, for like all the obvious reasons, right? He's a young black man, um, that's talk, that's telling truths that, um, people don't want to hear. And so the allergen <laughs> that, that people have to truth telling gets kicked up when, you know, when, when they access, you know, some of Pac's work. Um, but I, 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 I think that, um, you know, I became uh, a student of Tupac, um, somebody that was, you know, really studying him as an artist, um, <clears throat> in, in part because um, his work was transcendent. And what I mean by that is, you know, people will, will again, like be dismissive of him um, <clears throat> because he was... Um, you know, a musician and a poet and, and, you know, was <clears throat> doing some, you know, pop culture stuff. Um, and, um, and, and I think they'll say, oh, you know, it's, you know, he's so popular because he is rapping. Right. And, and, um, and that never um, sat well with me because if, if it was hip hop, if it was rap, then, um, then his contemporaries would still be as influential as Tupac is. Um, but they're not. And, you know, no diss to Biggie, you know, no, no diss to, you know, any of the folks that, that you know, that I grew up listening to, you know, Wu-Tang, Chris, Public Enemy, all them, right? Like kids are not still bumping them. Mm. I mean, like the hip hop heads are, right? But, but like every day, you know, young people, uh, my sons who are nine, you know, they, they don't know who those people are. Like, even though we still listen to them in the car sometimes, you know, but they know who Pac is. And that was always really striking to me that that year after year after year, my students were still listening to Pac. Mm. And that's that honestly, like, that's why I really started studying him was because I was like, there's something there that I want to understand more deeply as an educator, because there's something about his message that is transcendent. And <clears throat> I think it really is that metaphor of the rose that, that, that grew from concrete. This idea that um, Tupac, I think when you, when you listen to his, like the best of his work, if you come from, like where I come from, right? If you come from where a lot of um, my students come from, 
you feel seen mm. when you listen to him. You know, mm. it's like this dude gets it. Mm. It's not a show. Mm. And and I think that metaphor, that's why we named the school that, because it's that metaphor that our children are literally growing up in concrete. It's it's a metaphor for all of the foundational toxicity that we've laid onto the ground where we where we raise our children. And they still find a way, right? And Pox that in that poem, he says that um, I, I, I see your damaged petals and I see your tenacity and your will to reach the sun. And I think it's, that's what makes you feel seen. It's that like what, what Pac led with was I see you, right? I see what it takes for you to get to school every day. Mm. I I see what it takes for you to just make it through the day. Mm. And what I see when I see that is tenacity Mm. and will to reach the sun. It's courage, it's character, it's commitment. It's right. This is why I've been so like critical of Angela Duckworth and this idea that like kids need grit. It's like only somebody (laughs) who didn't grow up in the concrete would say some shit like you need grit. Like it takes so much grit to, you know, like for a black person or indigenous person to even like stomach this society, Mm. given all that's happened Mm. and the unwillingness to teach that truth, right. To have a serious conversation about reparations, even if we can't sort it out, right. To say that's, that's just basic common sense that there is a debt due to these communities. And, and we need to have a serious conversation about that. If we're ever going to be serious about reconciliation and atonement with those communities. And so I think for all those reasons, um, personally, you know, Pox work resonated with me. It was medicine um, mm. because truth is medicinal. Mm. And, and so mm. for me personally, it was that for so many young people in my community, it was that. Mm. And, and bro, like, it's not just Oakland. It's not because Pac had ties to Oakland either. You know, I tell this story about the first time I went to New Zealand to work with the Maori community there, the indigenous people of New Zealand. And this is literally like, I'm not being hyperbolic here. This it's literally the other side of the world. And I went there the first time, maybe, I don't know, 16, 18 years ago. And my first um, meeting was with a group of um, Maori high school youth. We're all sitting in a circle. I walk into the room and this this kid jumps up out of his chair and he like comes up to me and he's like, you're from Oakland. And I was like, yeah. He says, did you know Tupac? Mm. And I'm like, literally the first question Mm. out of a young person's mouth across the world, right. Is about Pac. Wow. So as an educator, right. Like as a researcher, as a father, as a community, like all these roles that I, move in you know i was like this dude has something to teach me Mm. and and i like the fact that Pac was so imperfect 
Mm-hmm. You know, that like there's this interview Chappelle does with Maya Angelou that I use in some of my talks where where she tells a story about interacting with Pac and and one and Chappelle says one of the things that he liked about the way that Maya Angelou told the story was <clears throat> that she described him, you know, not like some, you know, icon, right? But just as just as a young man who was in a confusing and difficult situation. And, um, and, and that's another thing that I really respect about Pac that, um, I don't put him on a pedestal. Um, you know, he, he was a teacher for me, um, in, in a whole bunch of different ways. Hmm. And, um, and I think that he's been that for, and I think that's another reason why young people gravitate to him, that he wasn't, he wasn't above it all, you know, like he, he was still very much a, a young black man in America trying to to put things together and knowing, knowing that this isn't right and mm-hmm. knowing that it doesn't have to be this way, that we could we could speak into an existence, a different set of ideas and that the speaking into existence of those different ideas is what uh, creates different kinds of builders. And I think that's what that's what teachers understand, right? Like, mm. and Pop said it too. Like he said, I, I don't, I don't think I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee you, I'll spark the mind that does. Yeah. And that's kind of how I feel as a teacher, right? Like, I don't think I'm going to change the world as a teacher, but I'm around young people so much, and I don't know, man. Like, all I can say is, is that despite all that I know, all the research I've done, all the life experience that I have, I'm an eminently hopeful dude. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I attribute much of that to constantly being around young people mm-hmm. who have every reason to mm-hmm. really doubt <laughs> this society that we built. And yet they still show up every day. You know, they're still mm-hmm. these, sparks of dreaming in them that um that makes me want to keep pumping fuel onto that fire and Mm -hmm. Pac did that for me wow wow man thank you thank you jeff i can't i can't thank you enough bro for taking time um to come on the pod and to just drop gems in such a beautifully graceful way man thank you so very deeply i deeply 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 man appreciate you and the work that you're doing even before us ever connecting man and so i'm just deeply humbled that you take time to uh, come on the pod so thank you bro thank you i i, I feel the same way and I'm, I'm honored to have been able to spend a little bit of time sharing some palabra with you today my brother so thank you please please take good care of yourself yeah likewise bro thank you well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining the Just Schools podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. Love reviews. 
And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace. I'm a